Industry Pods and Evergreen Podcast Network are pleased to present the following podcast. Thank you. Hello, everyone. I hope you're having a fantastic conference. From what I can see here, there's a lot of product activity. Um, this panel is here to talk about um, legislation and legalization. So legislation and legalization with regards to um, THC, CBD, and also Delta-8. And as we know, there's some other variants like THC-0, and we can get into the mix where those are concerned. My name is Cheryl Murray Powell Esquire. I'm a cannabis agricultural dietary supplement and trade attorney. Um, I've been in the cannabis industry for six years, and a lot of that work has been uh, legislative work um, from you know Nebraska, Iowa, Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, Alabama, uh, New York, North Carolina. So I spent a lot of time on planes, you know, trying to work on the legislation so we can get to this point. Um, it's really refreshing uh, to see this level of activity. Um, I'm also the chair of the Broward County Medical Marijuana Advisory Board. There is no other board like that appointed by the county in the state of Florida and as, I, as far as I know, anywhere in the country. And we had our panel yesterday as mentioned by Andres. So with that said, um, it's really important that we understand that a lot of the legislative work that needs to be done hasn't been done yet. And we wanna encourage you to get involved by reaching out to um, your legislators so that we can move the needle. So I'm gonna let our panelists actually introduce themselves and, and say a little bit about their practice areas for those who are attorneys and also their work areas if they're not. So uh, the first panelist I'll have is Joseph Smith. Hi, I'm Joe Smith. I'm an attorney with Thompson Hine based out of Washington, D.C., but I work with companies and individuals across the country. Um, I work with everyone from the processor or manufacturer all the way down to the distributor and retailer, pretty much every product that you see out on the floor there, um, and especially those in the vapor product and related industry as well. So uh, working with a lot of them, trying to deal with the PACT Act and then all the various state regulations that impact them and selling the products that they sell, um, as well as helping them with, um, and other clients with litigation and um, FDA regulatory matters. My name is Sean Hardwick. I'm with the law firm Burns Hardwick in Jupiter, Florida. Um, we do a lot of cannabis compliance, litigation work, um, you know, make it, and I've done a lot of, I've over two and a half years experience in this industry, doing a lot of licensing across various states. Uh, and making sure that uh, marijuana and hemp companies stay compliant with state and federal regulations. Hello, my name is Bryce Johnson. Um, I'm with Dynalite Pre-Rolls. So what we do is we take hemp concentrate and basically... All the way down to the distributor and retailer, pretty much every product that you see out on the floor there. Um, and especially those in the vapor product and related industry as well. So. Uh, working with a lot of them trying to deal with the PACT Act and then all the various state regulations that impact them and selling the products that they sell, um, as well as helping them with, um, and other clients, with litigation and um, FDA regulatory matters. My name is Sean Hardwick. I'm with the law firm Burns Hardwick in Jupiter, Florida. Um, we do a lot of cannabis compliance, litigation work, um, you know, make it, and I've done a lot of I've over two and a half years experience in this industry, doing a lot of licensing across various states, uh, and making sure that uh, marijuana and hemp companies stay compliant with state and federal regulations. 
Hello, my name is Bryce Johnson. Um, I'm with Dynalite Pre-Rolls. So what we do is we take hemp concentrate and basically infuse it with pre-rolls. Uh, HHC, Delta-8, some of these alternative cannabinoids, you're not gonna find typically in high concentrations inside of the plant. So they have to be infused. Uh, how I kind of got into that was used to be doing a Delta-8 online store and then we got hit with the PACT Act and had to kind of pivot and figure out some way to uh, ship those products. So now we're just kind of you know, doing that and really just trying to expand the industry overall. Awesome, thank you. And, and Joe, in your introduction, uh, you spoke about the PACT Act. Can you share with our audience the PACT Act, who should be concerned about it and how do you comply? Yeah, so who should be concerned about the PACT Act is anyone who sells any type of vapor product. Uh, because what the PACT Act does is it requires, it used to only apply to cigarettes and then it was recently in 2020, end of 2020, um, in the budget bill expanded to anyone who sells an, an electronic nicotine delivery system, uh, which was defined so broadly to include basically any product uh, that, that is a vapor product. So CBD, HHC, Delta-8, doesn't matter, it's subject to um, the PACT Act requirements, which are registration with the ATF and state level reporting for every state you ship or sell into, um, which creates a bit of a headache and problem for a lot in a lot of these states where one, they weren't used to dealing with in the first place, uh, but also people like Bryce who, if you're a wholesaler or especially if you're a retailer, you have this new hurdle of trying to get your product in. In order to do that, you've got to go through hoops of if a state requires a license, you've got to get licensed, which creates headaches, especially if they're not used to, especially non-nicotine products. Um, and then you also have to report every month what your sales and shipments were. Um, and so, yeah, so it just creates this real headache when it comes to the tax scheme as well as the licensing scheme. And so I've worked with a lot of companies trying to get up to speed on that and help them get in compliance. But a lot have gone the route of either finding a single distributor within their state or like, like Bryce did, they, they just go do something else. They find a different product. So, um, so yeah, so that's kind of a, a quick, um, quick and dirty version of what the PACT Act is and what it requires. And just to be clear, if a store sells only CBD products, as long as they have the delivery system um, that could be used for nicotine, even if they don't have nicotine products, they are gonna be held responsible for the PACT Act. Right, correct. Okay, just let make sure, making sure we clarify for everyone. So Bryce, um, as a producer, how do you navigate all these changing laws when, when you have to look at the federal level, you have to look at the state level, what's the best way to stay in compliance considering the constantly changing landscape? Yeah, honestly, it's, uh, it's reading the news. Like, it's, it's incredibly difficult. I probably read, you know, uh, every other day at least, just typing in, you know, Delta 8, HHC, see what's coming up in different states trying to stay on top of it. Um, also just kind of talking to legislators and trying to see, you know, kind of like what's gonna be happening in the future uh, so we can go to sort of plan around that. Uh, I really wish that it was a little bit easier because sometimes it feels like that, you know, like within two weeks, something can completely change. And so you're, you know, golden right as you're uh, working and then all of a sudden it's like, oh man, I just heard about this and now we gotta completely change everything that we're doing. So it's a lot of research, uh, a lot of just trying to stay up to code and um, kind of, I think of it as like specific geographic regions, trying to focus on those and not trying to push the boundaries in the ones where it is like more difficult to get those products to be compliant in that system. And how often do you find that you have to update your um, 
update your packaging? A lot. <laughs> a lot too, yeah. So uh, we actually had to just start printing our own labels basically because we had to you know, keep up to date with whatever was coming out. And a lot of times you don't even have any sort of notice. It's just like you read about it and it's like, okay, hey, now all of a sudden, as of yesterday, we've got to put this on there. So we try to like look at the hardest states and who's regulating the hardest and then go and follow that. Um, I think Florida has been the best so far. Uh, Holly Bell, the cannabis director here, does a great job. The town hall meetings are amazing. And uh, I think that has kind of helped out a lot is just having you know like a good communication with the people who are making the rules so that you kind of know to be able to, like how you can follow those. Um, but yeah, it, it's, <laughs> it's a lot of changes, a lot of like basically just staying kind of agile and being willing to adapt as needed. Really good tips there. Make sure you stay, uh, you read the news. Make sure, I would suggest Google Alerts for anyone who's in the industry. Um, make sure that you're in touch with your regulators and, and participate in the process. Um, very important tips, thank you so much. And then Sean, we wanna hear from you. I, I know this um, panel is supposed to cover THC, CBD, and Delta-8, so let's really talk about the distinctions there. Um, from a federal level, we know we had the Farm Bill of 2018 that was signed into law December of 2018, which really sets the tone as far as the definition of what's the distinction between hemp and marijuana. Can you take us through a little bit of that analysis and, and how you do it for your clients? Yeah, exactly. So the, the 2018 Farm Bill, you know, uh, put the distinction between hemp and marijuana. It's the same cannabis plant but it's defined by the level of THC that's naturally found in that plant. So the definition of hemp is cannabis with 0.3% THC or less. Um, in addition, um, any hemp product has to have 0.3% THC or less. So um, yeah, so, so the, the biggest issue that we, we run into is, um, you know, you can take a, a hemp plant uh, go through some sort of conversion process to create Delta-8 or, or some sort of other product. And um, during that time, the, you're gonna have over 0.3% THC at, at, you know, during that processing. Um, and so it, technically at some point it will become marijuana. Um, but the final product, again, has to be below 0.3% THC. And so hemp uh, producers have become very creative um, in creating these Delta-8 products, the HHC products, the THCO products, the THC products, um, which all fit within the definition of hemp if you look at deriving from a plant with 0.3% THC and then the final product having 0.3% um, THC or less. Even though some of these products are psychoactive um, and, and sort of mimic or have similar effects to Delta-9 THC, which is what makes uh, cannabis uh, um, you know, it's the big separator, the big distinction, um, and, and regulators really want to uh, make sure that, that consumers aren't having uh, psychoactive products that could potentially be unsafe to users. Excellent. And I know the Farm Bill also turns on, the, it has Delta 9 uh, uh, percentages less than 0.3%, but it also turns on sourcing of the material and sourcing from a, a legal hemp program. Um, how, do, how does that impact your work across the nation? So I'm going to let you all answer that. Like having uh, clients for the attorneys um, and having a business where you are targeting more than one state, um, how does the chain of custody and how you're sourcing the, um, sourcing the product vary from one state to the next? 
Yeah, I think the biggest challenge is that every single state has their own laws as to far as far as which products are legal. So um, several states have banned smokable hemp. Several states have banned edibles. And so it's really important to make sure that you're keeping on top of which states allow which products that you're selling. Because basically every product is legal down here in Florida, but you know Delta 8, for example, is, is banned in Arizona and California and Washington. So you gotta make sure that um, what you're selling is legal in that state. Yeah. Do you have anything to add, Joe? Yeah, I was just gonna say that um, Exactly like Sean said, I mean, the variance between states, what terms and how they're actually doing, for example, if they prohibit it um, with like Delta 8, there are, I think a little over 20 now that actually prohibit it, but then others don't necessarily prohibit it, but they only allow it for sale through certain channels, um, or, you know, they prohibit smokable hemp, but they allow inhalable hemp. So if you have vapor products, you can sell them, or some prohibit both. Um, or some prohibit inhalable, but not smokable. So it, it's fun explaining to clients about, well, no, this market you were selling to last week, you can't sell to anymore, or not with this product. Or for example, a number of states have started to set up requirements for um, distributor or retailer registration requirements, or product approval and registration requirements, where you have to send in, if you want to sell to the, that state, you have to send in your labeling and get it approved by the state, um, which if you sell to 50 different states is a bit of a headache because what may be acceptable in one state isn't necessarily gonna be acceptable in another state. And so that's just creating uh, more and more just a patchwork of how these com how companies have to operate. Excellent. And you know, I'm involved with a number of organizations inclu including the U.S. Hemp Building Association and um, the U.S. Hemp Roundtable and there's a lot of murmurings about the next farm bill. So if you were, had your wish list and you had the ear of the legislators who are going to make an impact, what would be your desire for the next farm bill? Any changes? So I, I think personally that there is a place for these alternative cannabinoids, especially in states that don't have recreational or medical programs. That is the cannabis industry there. You look at Texas, South Carolina, Tennessee, Kentucky, like most of the people that are there, I think they wanted to get into the cannabis industry. That's why they did CBD. That's why they started doing hemp. So maybe, you know, some of them wanted to stay just solely on CBD, but how do you sell a product? You can't say what it does. Like you can't make any claims about CBD. You can't market it as a dietary supplement. I mean, it's extremely difficult. So, I think that you know we need to keep some of these in that in there as hemp and at least until we establish some sort of framework for interstate commerce of marijuana because just moving those hemp products into the category of marijuana doesn't it, it's taking steps backwards i think i mean i would say most people think that we're on the way to legalization so let's you know keep going along that way let's not you know take backtracks on the other hand though i would really like to see some sort of like scale almost. I don't think that THCO, THCP, some of these ones that are completely synthetic, not naturally derived, and well, not found naturally in the cannabis plant, and that are more psychoactive than Delta 9, I don't think they should be in the same category. Delta 8, HHC seem to be less than Delta 9, so, you know, that's okay. I kind of look at it as like, let's do, let's regulate it like beer, and then let's regulate the hard concentrates like liquor. And uh, Senator Nancy Mace, uh, actually she's my representative from Charleston, South Carolina. She's got a really great bill right now. Uh, Amazon's backing it up. I, I would just push that one along and then add in some way to distinguish like, hey, let's take these 
really psychoactive ones, the ones that are gonna be 30 times or five times more you know, psychoactive than Delta-9, let's put those as controlled and then let's leave the other ones but establish a clear way and especially a track and trace system. That's probably one of the most frustrating parts is that you look in the marijuana states and they have easily tracked you know, from seed to sale. In the hemp industry, you've just got brokers all over the place. And most of the brokers are not willing to disclose where they're getting their, like, you know, their source material from because then you're just gonna go around them. So they'll redact COAs, they'll you know, blank them out. That's kind of annoying because then now you don't even know, you know where you're actually getting your stuff from. So I would like to see you know, a really nice track and trace system and a very clear pathway forward for like a federal you know, interstate commerce of cannabis as a whole. Excellent, really good points about track and trace, um, uh, centralization, federal oversight of cannabis. Uh, I wanna continue that discussion and go back to the Dream Farm Bill as far as, so um, it seems like a distinction's being made between intoxicating cannabinoids and non-intoxicating cannabinoids. So I'd like to bring Sean and Joe into that conversation about intoxicating cannabinoids. Is there a place for them outside of the dispensary space and how would that regulatory model look? And then we'll circle back to the Farm Bill Dream, Dream Farm Bill. Yeah, so I think one of the, the easiest things that we could do for the next Farm Bill is allow, um, to change the definition of hemp to allow for 1% THC. Because the reason we have hemp at 0.3% THC is because regulators uh, want to not uh, have these psychoactive products and allow the, the psychoactive products to be uh, regulated under the marijuana program. But at a 1% THC, you're not going to you know, have these psychoactive products and, and the ones that you can create, how they're created now, they're just gonna be, um, they're just gonna be better. They're gonna be higher quality products. So it's just a very simple fix to just allow a little bit, tiny bit more THC in the definition of hemp to create a higher quality product um, available to everyone in the market. Awesome. Do you have comments on either of those two topics? Yeah, I was just gonna say, yeah, the, well there's, um, the Congresswoman from Maine has, and I, I had Pellegree or Pennegree, I, I apologize for not getting her last name right, uh, but she, the hemp, one of the hemp bills she's put forward actually is aimed at raising. Pennegree, I think. Pinnigree, yeah, thank you. Um, thank you. Um, she, she does have it in the, her bill uh, to raise the THC level to 1%, uh, but that would shift it to a total THC cap rather than just the Delta 9. So that would, to an extent, have impact on some of these Delta 8s, but it also would make it a lot easier for the other, for the hemp companies uh, in general for to get their product out there to get it processed because for so many getting it that point three or below it, It's not an easy process and it has to be timed just right and it can be very difficult um, In terms of when they get to the lab and get it tested and all that so that one percent really could open the door for a lot Like Sean said higher quality um, And overall more hemp available and more hemp related products available on the market so we're hearing that um, making a clear distinction between intoxicating and non-intoxicating pro uh, products is one of the items we'd like to see some clarity on, as well as um, making sure that we raise the THC limit for the CBD products um, from cultivation all the way straight through to 1%. And I, I know there's a lot of support for that uh, desire. Um, do, just moving on a little bit, let's talk about white labeling. I'm sure this is an area that you um, speak to your clients about. A lot of people are interested in getting into the cannabis industry, and um, the more we have a legal regulatory framework, the more 
difficult it is for you to become a new entrant. So a lot of people are turning to white labeling products that are already in ex existence. They have the infrastructure. All they have to do is send their logo. The, the labels are supposed to be compliant. What are your views on white labeling and how? what advice would you give to people who are in the, in the process of selecting someone to white label products from? There's some vendors down there clearly advocating for, for selling white label products. So. Uh, anyone want to take that? Yeah, I think um, white labeling is important because branding in this industry is very, very important. Um, a lot of these hemp products are more or less the same. Like your CBD tinctures are, are pretty much the same from producer to producer. So it it's really comes down to the brand. What does the brand stand for? Some are targeted towards athletes. Some are targeted, um, you know, towards veterans. Some are targeted to a younger audience. Some are targeted to an older audience. So I think it's really getting your brand to the customers that you want um, is important for, for this industry. I would say too, uh, white labeling is kind of a good opportunity for people who otherwise couldn't join the industry. I mean, like cannabis as a whole has been illegal for like what, like last 20, 30 years, I think since the seventies. And so there are a lot of people I think that look at this as the next big agricultural commodity. and. In a way, you know, you've got a, like a mom, right? That she started to use cannabis and CBD oil even. She likes it a lot. You know, it's been made a huge impact in her and her family. She wants to start her own little business, right? How could she do that? Like, is she gonna have millions of dollars to be able to build out this huge facility? Probably not. And so I think that white labeling gives people an opportunity who otherwise wouldn't be able to have that capital or have the infrastructure to be able to be compliant and be able to produce high quality products. But it gives them the chance to enter into the market and at least, you know, make a name for themselves, like start a business, hire people, you know, uh, and it also really, I think that everything's sort of community driven in a way. Um, the, the hemp community is crazy, like Facebook groups, WhatsApp chats, that's really like uh, what is driving the industry. People are just talking, they're sharing information. I've, I've never really seen anything like it before. Uh, you definitely don't see it on the, the marijuana side. So I think that that's kind of a huge thing, private labeling, same thing. So I would say definitely entry into the market is a good thing. Awesome. Is there any litigation that we're watching, keeping an eye on as far as moving the needle on this industry? Any pending cases? The, uh, the Texas ban is, is huge, I think. Um, that one, when they dropped the video that was like the USDA and the DEA with the Florida town hall meeting talking about, you know, that these alternative cannabinoids were considered hemp, I think that was huge. Um, from the last time that I checked, they took it all the way to the Supreme Court in Texas, and they were like, yeah, no, they can't outright ban it because basically the state of Texas used the same language for defining uh, hemp products as what's in the federal farm bill. So that was like really good clarification, I think, and also kind of established some sort of precedent, I would think, um, but I don't know if it's actually been completely resolved, so that's huge. And then I also think that some of these places that have just been raided, like, uh, especially in the southeast, especially in the southeast. They'll go in and they'll raid these stores. They have no way to test or distinguish between Delta 8 or Delta 9. And so they'll come in and they'll just take all of your stuff. I mean, your cash, your inventory. Like, they're arresting people who are just working at a vape shop. And it's like, it's not really fair <laughs> at all. So I think that some of those ones are going to be important too and how that gets treated and how uh, it gets resolved. Yeah, I think we're seeing a lot of uh, intellectual property litigation. Um, We've seen trademarks that have been infringed, you know, like cannabis companies using uh, logos.
logos and branding that, that's very similar to products that are well established on the market. And then um, we also just saw recently a, a patent for uh, cannabis oil that was denied uh, by the USPTO. So um, I think it's, uh, you know, it's just interesting to see that this industry is becoming a lot more mature and, and experiencing a lot more of the headaches that uh, an established industry, you know, is facing. Okay. As we as we move forward, what are the areas where you'd like to see more standardization, and what are the areas that you think there needs to be uh, creative liberty as we continue to grow our industry? Lab testing, one hundred percent. That would be like definitely what I would say. We've had samples that we've sent to the same lab of the same lot and gotten a variance of like ten, fifteen percent. And even if we go to other labs, I mean, it's always going to be kind of different. And I understand to a certain extent, like every single batch, especially when it comes to plants, are going to be different. You know, the levels in the top of the plant are going to be lower than or you know, different than the ones that are in the bottom of the plant. But I think having some clear, you know, like standards for testing and for distinguishing whether or not, you know, what's actually in these, that's going to be huge. And I think that would really alleviate a lot of the issues. Awesome. And, you know, I'm a member of ASTM D37. I'm part of the executive committee. So um, that is something that ASTM D International takes really seriously. And they have developed some laboratory standards. It's just getting people to adopt those laboratory standards with regards to sampling, with regards to sanitizing equipment um, and, and other protocols. So it's great that you mentioned that because that is a really key area of consumer protection. Anyone else want to comment on um, Creative liberty versus standardization. Yeah, so as far as standardization goes, I think, it, and Bryce already talked about this, I think it's important that we have some sort of national trash, track and trace system. So what happens in, you know, in, in the marijuana industry is you track the, the seed from the time it's planted in the ground to when it goes to the dispensary to the time it's sold to the consumer. We don't have that in the hemp industry. So you can have a plant that's you know, grown in Colorado, processed here in Florida, and then sold to a consumer in North Carolina, and then if there's some sort of adverse reaction to that product, that consumer has no way to figure out what went wrong. There's no way to figure out you know, what went wrong with that product. So I think having some sort of track and trace system to, to track these products that are going to these states uh, will be very important. And then as far as the creative liberty, um, I think packaging uh, can be a lot more creative. These, every single state has their own sort of regulations for, for product packaging, um, and some of them require uh, warnings and all this sort of information that takes up all of the packaging, um, especially for like vape products that, that you don't have that much room to, to share that information. So I think having a more you know, standardized um, uh, you know, regulations as far as packaging goes that allow um, consumers to have more flexibility and more creativity to, to share their brand would, would be important. Awesome, and I, I love how you talked about packaging because Florida is a more, one of the more restrictive policies with regards to packaging, even in the marijuana space. Um, and one thing that ASTMD 37 has done is they've created a universal symbol um, for cannabis that's being adopted by a number of states across the country and, and even internationally. So that is an area where we can have some creative liberty so people can really understand what they're getting and um, we, we can have some branding activity. Um, but also we wanna make sure that um, when it comes to like universal symbols and, and things to identify Hey, we want to make sure that you know what you're getting. Um, we can we can be very standardized. So thank you for that. And and Joe, any comments on that? I, I actually think they the packaging standardization was the point I was gonna make. And and also what would be nice to see is some 
consistency or standardization in the registration or licensing process among the states in terms of what they expect for a consumable hemp product um, retailer or distributor. So that way, if a company based in Florida is selling elsewhere, they have some idea of what's required of them before they start selling there or before they really get involved. So that way they know, okay, I'm meeting the standard in my home state. It's going to be sufficient in another state. And, you know, because likewise, that's where the packaging standardization would be helpful because so many of these states, they do turn on what's on your packaging, what information are you including? Excellent. Um, there was a recent situation with a multi-state officer, and I won't name them, where uh, a multi-state operating operator where um, there was product that was labeled for CBD and it actually had a significant amount of THC in it. Um, do we feel that this is an isolated um, issue, and do we think that it caused people to be a little bit more uh, strict as far as what was happening in their establishments? I know from my experience that that is not an isolated issue. It is uh, unfortunately more common um, than we'd like that people are selling products that are CBD or Delta 8 or HHC and then they're sending off to get tested and it's turning out it has more Delta 9 um, than what's allowed. And I mean, there is significant variance in labs. You can send the same sample to multiple labs and get different results from each of them or you send this multiple samples to the same lab and you are getting different results then. Um, so I don't think it is what, I, what I've what i dealt with. It's not a one-off experience and it does make, I, I've seen my clients, it does make them more hesitant about trying or bringing new products into their, if they're for the retailers, it makes them very hesitant about, well, do I trust this product? Do I know who's who I'm buying this from? And can I count on the COA that they're providing me being accurate, or do I have to do my own testing before I put this on my shelves or start selling it online? Okay, any other? No? Um, with regards to, um, we said we would talk about THC, so getting involved on the THC side of the business, um, you know, opening a dispensary, opening a processing manufacturing site, uh, op uh, starting to cultivate um, cannabis, is there still a window for that activity um, from a national perspective, or is it closing rapidly. And in Florida, what's that opportunity currently? I know we haven't had a round since 2015. There's a current black farmer round uh, occurring right now, and there's the hope of, of new opportunities. So for people who are interested in getting involved with receiving one of the vertical licenses in Florida or looking at another state, um, what would be your advice to them? What are your predictions in that area, and what would be your advice to them? Yeah, here in Florida, like you just mentioned, there's going to be a black farmer round, and then there's supposed to be around 17 more licenses opening up in the next couple of years. Um, what's important down here in Florida uh, to keep in mind is that it, there is a vertical integration requirement, which means the operator has to grow the product, create the product, sell the product, and deliver the product. In most states, you're getting a license for one of those activities. And so, so you need to have a lot of money to operate in this state, right? So all, all the operators right now are, are multi-million dollar companies. Um, so you might not necessarily on paper need to have multi-million dollars to win one of these licenses, but to effectively operate is going to require a lot of money to um, you know, build out the facilities to grow the plant, to process the plant, and then to get dispensaries to sell this product to persons all over the state. This is a huge state. Um, you know, True Leaf has you know over 110 dispensaries. So to to get that sort of access to people, um, you need lots and lots of capital. So 
well, what anyone, uh, what I recommend to anybody getting who wants to get into the, the regulated marijuana industry is is to assemble a team of not only experts in this industry who, who can grow your products from day one to create your products from day one, but also have that capital behind you um, so you can start operating and you don't run into to hurdles if, if you do um, get that license. And anything else on getting involved on the THC side? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the window is, is closing for sure. You look at some of these states, like uh, especially out west, that have established recreational and medical programs, and they're basically like oligarchies, I think. You know, like they're regulated in, there's only a limited number of licenses, and those MSOs are only gonna get bigger. They're already multi-million dollar like businesses, and then, I mean, their, their sales are through the roof. So then as all these other states go and start doing legalization, I mean, there's no way that those companies are not lobbying and trying to get a license there. So I think that they're, you know, like I would say, find a way in, you know, whether that's through technology or starting off with hemp or, you know, any way that you can really just try to get in because if you're not in now, then maybe, you know, in a couple of years, you won't have an opportunity anymore. Excellent. And Joe, anything? Or uh, yeah, I would just say capital is one of the biggest aspects regardless of what, what state you're going in. And start paying attention early on, start building that capital reserves and start looking at the states that are gonna be having programs either coming online in the, this year or within the next couple of years. Virginia, where I live, for example, they failed to move it forward to 2023, so now they're looking at 2024 as the start. Um, it's just one example. But start looking early, you know, like Bryce said, out west, most of those states, doors kind of closed. Start looking at these new states that may be coming online where there's going to be that opportunity and be prepared to have that capital ready to go because so many of them require, even if you're not you know, vertically integrated, even if you just want the dispensary, a lot of them have um, capital requirements that essentially can be a barrier to most people that would be interested to get into the business. So start planning early. Don't, don't try and do it on the LARP because then you're gonna have some very unfortunate conversations about how it's just not realistic. Absolutely. And just talking about the capital-related issues, let's talk a little bit about cannabis banking and some of the banking challenges we've had, um, whether you're on the hemp side, CBD, or uh, with CBD and other cannabinoids, or if you're on the medical marijuana side, banking continues to be a problem. Um, at ASTM International, I am starting a um, cannabis banking subcommittee of D37 to try to address this finance and insurance uh, subcommittee. So what are your thoughts on the current state of cannabis banking and what we'd like to see in the future? Yeah, I think uh, the banking is extremely difficult for anyone in this industry. Banks are, are starting to open up to, to hemp companies, uh, you know, knowing that it's federally legal, but on the marijuana side, obviously, it's still federally legal and we, we still see banks that are um, very reluctant to take on these customers or to extend any sort of financing. So I think the, the closest thing we have to any sort of federal um, progression as far as in cannabis or, or marijuana in particular is um, the Safe Banking Act, which would allow uh, you know, these marijuana companies to bank and receive funding just like any other sort of uh, company in any sort of industry. Um, and the issue that we, we keep running into as far as the Safe Banking Act, I think is that it, it's included in um, a bill which uh, encompasses a lot of other things um, besides the, the banking. So um, a defense spending bill, for example, has a lot of aspects to it. And so you, you're gonna have you know, representatives and senators who might be for it or against it, but then if they're against it, they're also against the, 
you know, marijuana banking. And so I think if there was a standalone bill for the Safe Banking Act, I think we'd have, um, you know, a successful um, implementation of that, and you know, across the country. Really good observation, and um, I'm involved with an organization called the Cannabis Financial Industries Group, and the main um, partner is a, a, a company called uh, uh, the Liaison Group. They're a lobbying firm out of D.C., and they're very much involved with working on the Safe Banking Act, and uh, the strategies are, you know, attaching it to all these, we call them vehicles. So these vehicles to get it through the legislature, whether it is on other topics. So it's really interesting to hear the um, different the, the other opinion as far as hey, let's just do it standalone and wait for that opportunity instead of trying to attach it to whatever we can going through. And I think that's a really interesting debate. Um, anything else on cannabis banking? Yeah, I, I think that actually not having access to banking actually makes it more dangerous, uh, especially in the states where they have recreational medical marijuana and it's all cash. Like they have to use armed armed guards and armored trucks to be able to move these large piles of cash, and they face robbery. They face, you know, uh, I'm pretty sure there's some places that are just supplementing their legal side with basically their illegal side. And that's the only way they can kind of keep going, especially California. But uh, I think that that's kind of like a situation we need to sort of fix because if you don't have access to banking, how can you really do a whole lot? And in a way, I think that that's also kind of encouraging more criminal activity by not having a clear way to you know, have banking. Anything else, sir? Yeah, I would just say on you know another issue with that is just essentially allow some state chart banks or credit unions because those are usually the only ones doing it to basically have a monopoly on the banking. And in Maryland, they may there may be two now, but for the longest time, one bank did all the banking for every medical marijuana company in the state. And so when you have that kind of monopoly and you're the only one or one of only a few doing it, you can charge exorbitant rates to these companies and it does make it a lot harder. And even for ones that aren't in the THC side, but even hemp, so many of them are still having issues with that. Or one, or I have clients who they sell vaping products, but they start getting into hemp or distributing hemp products and suddenly they're banking, they start having banking issues because their local banks started having questions of what is this product? Is it legal? You, you know, we need, you know, they started having all these additional hurdles. So something like the Safe Banking Act or really anything to help give some more clarification on this point would be help relieve a big burden for the industry. Fantastic. Um, and access to capital is such a huge issue when it comes to social justice issues and um, equity and allowing for minority participants to enter the market um, and, and people who don't have the means. So it's really something that we need to put some attention on um, at a federal level. Um, with that said, um, just thinking about you know the marijuana industry overall and, and um, the fact that we've built this legalization on the backs of you know, equity-related issues, social justice-related issues, but also patients. So now that we're in a state that is a medical state, we haven't made any movement. There's been adult use bills every single session, uh, and they have failed, uh, and it doesn't look like we'll do any better this session. So have we forgotten about, the, as we've built this industry in a medical state, have we forgotten about the patients? Have we forgotten about, um, you know, the people who are wrongly incarcerated? Have we forgotten about... Um, other people who deserve uh, justice with regards to this plan. 
yeah, I think that we, we kind of have. Um, in Florida, the last license that I saw, I think, wasn't it like $54 million is how much did it cost? Yeah, but they go between 54 and a mil and 100 million, yeah. So, I mean, like, who, who, who has $54 million just laying around? Yeah. Like, we, you know, it, if we talk about social equity, I think that part of that is opportunity. And I don't think that opportunity should just be, okay, hey, you know, we want to get a license, so let's find somebody who's going to qualify for social equity and basically put them up as like a front person so we can get the license. That's not right either. You know, I think that if somebody wants to join the industry, give them the opportunity, give them a way, like something that they can do, you know, with like just anything really that they can do. So uh, I think that we kind of have forgotten about it a lot. I think that we use these buzzwords and we talk about it as like, oh, you know, something that we're doing and then really nobody's really doing a whole lot about it. Yeah, I think in the, Thank you for saying that Bryce is referring to like straw man situations where there's a minority person and then the funding people have options to buy them out for a little bit of money and things like that. So um, those are things that now we're seeing commissions across the country, Vermont's working on their regs, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, um, New Mexico, where they are in addition, and even this black farmer's license in Florida, um, previously they didn't ask for your operating agreement, any option agreements, loan agreements when you were submitting. Now they're scrutinizing those documents to make sure that we're not in a predatory situation. So um, there is some advancement there, but absolutely we have to remember the patients because those are the people who, like moms of sick kids who brought their children in in wheelchairs testifying, our, our U.S. veterans who came in and they testified um, as far as this is why we want legalization. Now that we have a robust industry, let's make sure that they have a place in that industry. So thank you for your comments there. Anyone else want to comment about, you know, the patient patient experience in a medical state such as Florida? Yeah, I just think the, the biggest problem that we have, and I think we have to wrap up, but um, is the fact that we, we have, especially down here in Florida, every company is a multi-million dollar company, but we still have people incarcerated for minor cannabis offenses. Mm -hmm. So we have people making millions and millions of dollars off this plant, but there's still, you know, thousands of people locked up here in the state, and then obviously thousands across the country that are locked up for, you know, for this illegal act, which people are, are now profiting millions of dollars off of. Awesome. And I am keeping track of time. We don't have to wrap up just yet. Uh, so I want to make sure that each of you um, get an opportunity to answer some questions from our audience. So um, are there any questions at this point for this panel? No panels. No panel questions. Yes, sir. Actually, yeah, it's a broad one, whoever wants to. Um, and it goes into all the dump trucks as well as what you brought up earlier with the vape, with uh, shops around the country getting a stormtrooper and everything taken. I owned, I owned some shops in the 90s and 2000s and since 71 with the uh, Nixon Controlled Substance Act, you know, federal law dictated and still, like with rum, supersedes local law. So every four to eight years, we would have DEA sweeps. There was only a half a dozen of us in Palm Beach County. So we would call each other, hey, you got a semi-truck here, you know, is the same true in, I mean, we've come a long way in the green industry, <laughs> like a long way since then, but is the same thing true and potentially happening now? Where there could be a federal sweep because that supersedes local legislation. I, personally, I don't know about federally, uh, possibly, you know, but I think that that's a very controversial thing that would occur, you know, especially like, uh, I think that the Justice Department has like a memo out kind of right the way they're not really yeah, the call memo after and, and subsequent memos, memos I, yeah. I think that if you're you know if you're a cartel 
or you're like really hardcore in the black market that you should worry about the federal government. But I think, I would hope that really they have other priorities there. You know, like really, if we're talking yeah, about- what it was every four to eight years, depending upon the political swing, election season. Almost every year, 14 years, we would have feds come in to our shops and what you kind of described would happen. And we would call each other, hey, we clear our shops out. And it was clockwork every four to eight years. Um, so you bringing up that that's happening, which I wasn't aware with uh, with the vapes and the deltas and such. I didn't know, and I'm correct if I'm wrong, uh, Council, but uh, the Controlled Substance Act 71 still is enacted, right, as far? Yeah, so how does that look now in today's um, narrative, in today's political? Yeah, I'll, I'll take that question. If yeah. You're, you're, okay, so, so yes, we are vulnerable to the swing, political pendulum swing, and who's in office and um, who uh, puts in place attorney generals, we are in a vulnerable position. We're not as vulnerable as we have been in the past just because there are some very vocal governors, like when you're looking at California, when you're looking at Nevada, when you're looking at um, Colorado, that have really stood up for the industry, and I think that's going to be a growing population, especially as we see the tax revenues flow into the states and support their educational programs. So the more that we can, one, stay in compliance so that we can um, give the data to support these governors, these brave um, political leaders, influencers, um, the ability to say we're a good industry, we've been regulating ourselves, we've been compliant, then there's less of a risk of that. Um, but uh, in our budget, national budget, there's always a line saying, you know, the DEA does not have the funding capability to um, prosecute these legal, um, these state highly regulated um, state uh, programs. So the key is staying involved and not sleeping at the wheel. We're not all the way there, but it does depend on your vote and who you put in place with regards to the risk um, of that um, scaling back a little bit, but I want Joe to be able to speak as well. No, I was gonna say exactly that, but I was also going to say um, one area where there has been some federal enforcement, not so much on the products themselves, but uh, some of the uh, equipment or devices that are used, such as vaping devices, things like that. Um, what we've seen is more of um, CBP, Custom and Border Patrol, seizing products at the borders, um, seizing shipments, and holding them up, and even if they're being used for, for hemp or other legal products, they're still being seized, they're still being held because there's the potential they could be used for marijuana, which that's where it comes back to, well, federal law is still legal, we're holding it, you need to pay X amount of dollars to, we're not gonna give it to you, but you have to pay for it anyways. Um, so, that, so that's one avenue where there is some more activity, and frankly, some of that unfortunately depends on who the customs uh, inspector or officer is who happens to be going through your shipment um, and what port your product comes in at. Uh, but you know what I've gotten, what I've seen more of is it's state level enforcement. It's local law enforcement, whether it's a sheriff or police going into these vape shops um, or smoke shops or just general variety shops where these products are being sold and seizing them or questioning or doing the testing and they can't tell the difference between Delta 8 and Delta 9. They just say, THC, we're seizing it, you're under arrest, we'll, we'll figure this out later. Um, and usually what happens is exactly that. Everyone starts calling around in their community, they start saying, hey, I just had sheriff's deputies show up here, 
get it off your shelf now, or hey, tell so-and-so this product tested positive for THC, we need to figure out what's going on here. Um, and then there's also usually tied into that um, because it's a grapevine. DEA was here, they're the ones doing the testing, you know, they're the ones seizing, and then you find out two days later, no, it's just the sheriff decided they were gonna crack down. And it, you know, that has just as significant impact because it does put fear in people that, well, my shot could be next, or I'm only a county over, is this some part of a broader task force, broader action like we've seen in, well, South Carolina, I know they did something, Georgia did something along those lines. You know, so it does create that concern even if it's not the federal level. Excellent, thank you. That's such a great note to close on. And I just wanna add that, you know, the federal agents are here. They are not always, you know, don't be as alarmed when they come in for a raid. They're always present, they're at every one of our events. So we need to be compliant all of the time, whether we're in our own spaces, uh, when we're in our own shops among friends, we need to always make sure that we are representing the industry in a way that'll allow the industry to continue. So they're already here, they've been here, they've been attending conferences right along with us. Okay, so thank you. I wanna thank our panelists. Please give a round of applause to the panelists. Thank you so much. And um, we are going to The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert, Warren Buffett, once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.